This is episode 51 of Cinescope, and you sit on a throne of lies. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Joe Darnell to talk about one of our favorite films, Elf. How are you doing tonight, Joe? Hey, Chad. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me back. Yes, it's been a while. When was the last time you were on? Is it episode 23, I think, uh, when we talked about Vertigo? Yeah, that was uh, back around Thanksgiving or so last year. <laughs> I uh, think it was. I don't think it was quite that far back. I think it was right at the turn of the year, if I remember correctly. But I'm, I'm oh, not okay. positive. It's been a long year. It, it has been. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm glad to finally have you back. You know, this is episode 51. And I had you all the way back on episode one. So it, it's it's been a long journey. It's crazy to think that I'm finally past the 50 episode mark here on Cinescope. Congratulations, Chad. Uh, you're a real life boy now. You're not a wooden toy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are getting into a sort of special Christmas in July episode is the the purpose behind picking this movie. But before we get into that, just a couple things to go over. First, let's have Joe. How about you reintroduce yourself so everybody out there can familiarize themselves with you? Yeah, sure. So I tweet a lot these days. Um, I've been focusing a lot of my career. So I am a video producer and a lot of my work has been for the business clients, business to business market. And I'm moving into broadcast TV at the beginning of August. So I'm looking forward to that. But I'm based here in Metro Atlanta and I've been here all my life. I enjoy the creative process and I've reviewed a ton of movies. Used to do movie reviews with Chad and other friends for other podcasts. So it's always been a real treat to collaborate and discuss these things together. Yes, you and TJ over at Retake and Night Owl have been on a little bit of a hiatus, but I'm hoping that that won't be too much longer and that the two of you will get back together and review some more movies here soon. Yeah, I went up to visit him and I saw his space where he does all of his recording and I was shocked. I had no idea that he, that he had like a setup where he recorded his shows in a separate room and it was kind of cool. Um, I always used like my home office and I have to drape all these uh, blankets and stuff on the walls to soundproof it. So it sounds like uh, it's just you and me and no echo in the room. Right. I've got just the one room at the moment. I've got my bedroom with a desk set up on the side and my TV set up on the other side. And I've got some foam padding behind my computer to reduce the echo a little bit. Jealous of TJ just a little bit, but uh, maybe one day. <laughs> That's the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. His desk reminds me of the Batcave's computer because it's got like three computer screens. It's all decked out. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have you back, Joe, and to have you reviewing a movie here, even if you're not back on retake just yet. So, Thank you. It's it's always a pleasure. And I, I, one thing I love about your show is always talking about good movies, <laughs> not troubled by talking about the the latest flops <laughs> or something. That is a definite plus of my show. Uh, I, I loved my time over a movie by it with you and TJ, but you know there were some stinkers along the way. <laughs> and so yeah. it, it's nice to be talking about movies that I enjoy every single week and being looking forward to delving into something different that I know I'm going to love. There is another podcast uh, while I'm thinking about it that's sort of like the antithesis of your show called The Flop House. And it's a few years old and it's been around. I mean, I know they're, they're always talking about a new flop. <laughs> they've covered a lot of ground because they've been going on for years. But it's sort of a cult classic if you're into that sort of thing. If you want to hear about movies that people don't like, maybe check that out. But we are anything but that. <laughs> here at we, yes, we are. And uh, I'm looking forward to diving into this Christmas movie in the middle of July. But just a couple more things. First, I want to remind everybody about our giveaway that's happening for like one no less than a week at this point you are running out of time so in the next few days after you get this episode here on thursday um, make sure you enter on itunes by reviewing and rating the show or by sharing on facebook and twitter and that'll get you a chance to win up to two movies any movie that we've talked about on the show up through next week so get on that and then one more thing that i want to tease an announcement pseudo announcement kind of thing coming at the end of this episode 
a new podcast is coming from my laptop starting in the very near future. And if you want to hear more about that, you might have seen some of it on social media already. But in the meantime, stick around. End of the show. I'll talk just a little bit about it before we close out tonight. Very nice. Thank you. Staying busy. I am staying busy. I am loving this podcasting thing. One year of Cinescope, almost at a close, ready for year two and a podcast number two. So anyways, that is all as far as announcements go. Are you ready to talk about Elf? Yes, please. One of my (laughs) favorites. Mine too. I'm glad you picked this one. I said, hey, Joe, let's talk about a Christmas movie. If you could pick a Christmas movie. First, you said, it's a wonderful life. And I was like, uh, I haven't seen that one just yet. Uh, I know I lost the movie cred just now. Uh, but that's one that my dad has always talked about introducing me to. And so hopefully the first time I sit down and watch that movie, it'll be with my father and the rest of my family. Mm. So in the meantime, you mentioned Elf as a good substitute. And I was glad you mentioned it because I did not watch this past Christmas season for one reason or another. So I was glad to revisit it for the first time in a little while this year. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Do do you try to hit all the, your favorite cl- Christmas classics a year in and year out? It depends. There there are a few that I absolutely have to. Like Polar Express is number one for me. Uh, White Christmas is always a staple because my family really enjoys that one. So no matter what, I'm going to see at least part of that every year. And then there are ones like the Muppet Christmas Carol or the, the Rankin-Bass Christmas specials or things like that that I always see every year. But Elf oh, is just yeah. one that I didn't get around to for some reason this past year. Yeah, it's it's one of the top three for me. Muppets Christmas Carol, Elf, and I do like the classic Christmas uh, Grinch cartoon. But It's a Wonderful Life. I would qualify as perhaps the best, at least black and white classic movie, Christmas movie. But I don't catch it every year just because I don't want to watch it by myself. And most of my family doesn't appreciate it. But then I know that that's sort of the story for everybody. There's always that movie that you like a ton and the rest of your your family and friends just not really into it. But, and sadly, uh, there's even people who don't like Elf, Chad. And uh, I hope that none of our listeners are people who don't like Elf. They can just turn off the podcast now. They don't need to finish listening to the show. <laughs> well, hopefully, if you're one of those people who maybe is less than enthused by Elf, you're listening and you're going to stick with us through this episode and maybe view the film a little bit differently. That's our goal is to just talk about everything in this movie that is worth watching and worth sticking around for. So before we get into our actual discussion, let's go over some stats. So this was released on November 7th of 2003 and was directed by Mr. John Favreau, who also directed Maid, Zathura, Iron Man 1 and 2, Cowboys and Aliens, Chef, the 2016 live-action remake of Disney's The Jungle Book, and he is set to direct the same live-action reboot of Disney's The Lion King. Amazing. Set to be released in 2019. So if you haven't been following some of the casting for that movie, it's it's got some pretty stellar people lined up already, which I'll let you look up on your own. This movie was written by David Barenbaum, and the music was composed by John Debney, who's got a big hodgepodge of credits to his name. So I'm just going to go through a random selection. There's Hocus Pocus, The Town Santa Forgot, Cutthroat Island, the movie version of Doctor Who featuring the Eighth Doctor, huh. The Emperor's New Groove. The Princess Diaries, oh. The Passion of the Christ, Zathura, Iron Man 2, The 2016 Jungle Book, and the upcoming The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman. Wow, that's quite an assortment. It is. And if you look at his filmography, like the full layout of it, there's lots of Hanna-Barbera kind of cartoons in his early work. I think he did huh. the Jetsons movie and other related titles such as that. And so he's got just a whole wide gamut of things. Yeah, I want to check more of that out. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a great composer and n- not one that is really put into the forefront very often. We have a lot of John composers to keep track of. We do. We've mm. got Williams, Powell, Debney. Debney, of course. Who else? I'm sure there are a few. Yeah. <laughs> They're cheaper by the dozen. Um, we, can I list off the stars? We got Will Ferrell, Zoe Deschanel, James Kahn, Kane? James Kahn. Yeah, thank you. Mary... Ah, maybe you should have done this. <laughs> Stein, uh, Steinbergen, <laughs> Daniel Tay, Ed Asner, and Bob Newhart. Yes, in a name I didn't mention, there is an appearance by Mr. Peter Dinklage as well. 
So let's get into our discussion. What was your first experience with this movie, Joe? Ah, many Christmases ago. I guess it wasn't the year it came out, but I remember people talking about it. It was a big success among my friends. And then we caught it the following year at home. And it really took us by surprise because our family was kind of iffy back then about modern Christmas movies. Um, we weren't big fans of the Tim Allen Christmas movies, uh, Santa Claus movies. And on the heels of those, we were kind of skeptical about Elf. We were afraid that it would be that kind of fair. But then, really, it just blew us away. And we were laughing the whole way through. And uh, just really heartwarming. And it was uh, a fascinating, different approach. And I grew up on the animated shows like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And I think it was there was also a sequel to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer that involved uh, the Baby New Year. And that was weird. Um, and Rudolph is like a hero in that story, saving the Baby New Year. And they had the the snowman up there in the North Pole, you know, talking uh, out these different problems with the broken toys and animals and stuff like that. And it was charming when you were a kid. It made, <laughs> it made less and less sense the older you got. And you realized, like, really, this is a, a very simple bedtime story that has been really stretched into a major motion picture, you know, or, or something like, you know, a 30-minute special or a 60-minute special for TV. And so it was just really enjoyable to see how they were sort of, like, playing along with those goofy animated movies for the picture Elf. And I think that would be lost in a lot of the audience. A lot of people wouldn't realize that they were tying themselves into a classic Christmas bedtime story type movie story with the elf story. But that was something that was not lost on me. So it made it all the more fun that it started from that premise. And then it did something I wouldn't quite call original, but definitely full of surprises. Just taking the idea that you got a full grown man who's totally clueless and thinks he's a real elf and even when he realizes he's not an elf he can't shake his like his entire life experience as being a kid elf so i love it i had a long sort of self-imposed boycott on will ferrell films and it wasn't ever something that i explicitly stated that i, I was never going to see a will ferrell film ever but it, he was just a comedian that didn't interest me i thought he was vulgar i didn't think his brand of comedy was up my alley um, and so I avoided this film for a long time and I didn't get around to it, I think, until probably four years ago, five years ago at this point. And this was one of the first Will Ferrell movies I think I'd ever seen up at this point. I had a friend who highly recommended it to me. I trusted her opinion. And so the first time I watched this movie was on a band bus uh, on my laptop on the way to some sort of sporting event for the marching band. And wow. The elf would have loved to watch the movie with you in the band bus. Yes, I'm sure he would have. Um, but I, I loved it. I thought it was very funny. It was very self-aware kind of humor. Right up my alley. Will Ferrell is delightful in this movie. I, it was just so much different than I expected it to be. And so since then, I've, I've explored Will Ferrell just a little bit more. Still not my absolute favorite, but I've since warmed up to him in things like the Lego movie. Uh, he's in a couple episodes of The Office that I, I, I like in retrospect. And so it's just a movie that has grown on me. And a an actor at this point who has grown on me because of this movie. So it, it's just a delightful, fun, full-spirited kind of Christmas movie. It, it's just the perfect movie to get you in the mood for Christmas, I think. Because there maybe are one or two down points. But when it's not those two brief down points, it's very up. Like the very whole time. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was my first experience and my, my experience since is that it's, it's a movie that I underestimated, finally watched it, and, man, it, it's definitely up there as far as favorites go. I also like the, the gist of the story that he's <laughs> starting from the North Pole, and he has this really staunch belief in Santa Claus because he knows the guy. And then when he comes to New York, he assumes everybody believes in Santa Claus like they know that they got to drink water and they need to breathe air. But not everybody has seen Santa Claus. And 
he is shocked, really, that people don't understand that Santa Claus is real and just take him for granted like he does. But but he doesn't take him for granted. He he puts him up on a pedestal. He thinks the world of the guy. So he gets all excited and giddy like everything is new. Every time he's thinking about something about Christmas, it, it, his excitement and enthusiasm is like he was born yesterday. But he's been doing these things for his whole life. So when he sees something new, his wonder is no different than his excitement that Santa Claus is coming to town because he just loves the guy that much. Yeah, it's funny. It, it wasn't a comparison that I had made previously, but while you were talking just now, I thought, you know, this is very similar to Enchanted in a lot of ways. The Disney film starring Amy Adams, except yeah. um, one, it takes place during Christmas time and he's not animated, but he's coming from this world where a lot of the stuff is sort of animated. You've got the these very exaggerated back uh, backdrops. You've got these clay animated <laughs> characters, including a very similar snowman to the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer <laughs> series. When he departs the North Pole, he jumps onto a block of ice, just like Yukon Cornelius and the rest of the team do in the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Ranger special. And so it's definitely hearkening back to those classic Rankin-Bass Christmas specials, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the other ones. And it's just funny how it takes that setting and then puts him into the middle of New York, just like Enchanted does it's these two characters who are experiencing an entirely new world. And in that way, it was actually sort of reminding me a little bit of the new Netflix series. I say new, it's a couple years old at this point. Uh, Netflix series, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, where you have this character played by Ellie Kemper, who has been kidnapped for most of her life. And when she's finally found and rescued, she decides to go start a life anew, away from the stigma of being a victim all of her life. And she goes to New York City. So the New York New York City is just a <laughs> yeah. place to start anew and experience life for the first time in a in this big, great new setting. And that's what this movie is. And that's what Enchanted and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt are. I agree. And the one other thing I don't want to overlook that I think is just another charming characteristic of the picture is where it begins and ends with these storybook pages and covers. So it looks like it's the beginning. It, it shows a few of the titles, if I remember right. And it shows uh, elves and stuff. And it has the musical number. The kind of like the elf theme, which you don't hear a lot in the movie, but I really like that jingle. It's uh, it's very heartwarming and it kind of covers the whole gamut of uh, this is sort of a fairy tale coming to life. It, it, it evokes that, like you were saying, where the fantasy meets uh, New York City. And I, I felt like the music <laughs> hit that spot on. Yeah, you actually just mentioned two things that I was about to mention as well. One is the the intro, the, both the storybook, which uh, is sort of the transition into the actual story of everything. But before that, there's a little bit of a prologue uh, by Bob Newert's character, Papa Elf. Yeah. And it's perfect because what's funny about Bob Newert's character in this movie is that he he almost feels unscripted. It feels like he's <laughs> sitting there improvising the yeah. story and he, he's got he these uh, hesitations and pauses in his speech. Um, but... It feels unscripted in the sense that he's sort of stumbling over his words, but it also feels like very funny. It's hysterical, really. And he makes jokes about Keebler elves and about gnomes and trolls not being potty trained <laughs> and all these kinds of things that sort of delve into popular culture in other ways. But, you know, elves are the superior race of these these other fantasy races. And it, it's just funny how he is able to so straight-faced deliver these really funny lines without even cracking a smile, really. He's this this really serious sort of deadpan character. It's also really effective how he's breaking the fourth wall and he's talking directly to the camera. But then the picture seamlessly transitions from you've got the elf talking directly to you to the rest of the picture where he's a character in the story to there's really no narrator at all to coming full circle again when they wrap up the picture. Right. It's like the the storybook really is you're, you're jumping into it. And then at that point, once you're inside the story, there's no need for the narrator because you're living the experience. It also feels like a movie that retroactively should have had a children's bedtime storybook version of the film. Like, I don't reckon that that exists. It, it might, but I've never heard of it. And I know I, it, it does seem like it's an original story. I'm not suggesting it was based on a kid's you know bedtime story, but it's the kind of movie you could see an adaptation of it. Because they talk about it at the end of the movie, like they they translate Buddy's story into a real bedtime story, and that's 
it's like, hey, that would actually probably sell at Barnes & Noble. So I don't know why it doesn't exist. Yeah, I'm not sure if it does exist or not. I know there is a stage musical based on the the movie, and there's also a Christmas special that came out a few years ago called Elf Buddies Musical Christmas, um, which was filmed as a sort of stop motion Rankin Bass picture. So it's again poking fun and making allusions to the, those Christmas classics that everybody grew up with. Now let's start talking about characters. So right off the bat, Buddy is our main character, our big human elf, Will Ferrell. What do you think of the guy? I well, first of all, I kind of feel like you do, Chad, where uh, Will Ferrell is kind of indifferent to the actor. I'm not a mega fan, and I'm not di- disinterested in his pictures, but. It's on a case-by-case basis. I really enjoy some of his performances. I like him as Harold Crick in Stranger Than Fiction, which I thought was a worthy mention, where uh, it's not his normal kind of humor. It's a very funny film. It's really more dramatic. And he he shows that I think he has like a favorite form of humor and comedy that he naturally gravitates towards. And maybe when the direction and the production's give him more creative license to steer it that direction. He goes full on. This is Will, Will Ferrellized, you know. But in this picture, it feels like he actually was capturing the vision maybe of the, the direction and the writer together and honing what Will needed to do for Buddy's character. And it's, it's like a special version of his normal personalities, that you know, characters that he creates. It's it's a unique version of that. It's not his his normal comedic self, but it's pretty close. And this is my favorite. This is what I like Will doing the most. I, I know that it's kind of limiting, but he's got this odd combination of uh, boyhood spirit, but then he knows he's very much an adult. So they play up these themes where he... He in in his mind he kind of feels like an elf because that's what he always thought he was, and he, it's like he he's so uh, naive that he like he doesn't understand the concept of a lie or why somebody would lie. So there's the classic moment where he's walking the streets of New York and he's taking gum, and Santa Claus warned him not to take the gum because it's not free candy. But he he assumes hey there's real gum just on the rail here. Let me see, <laughs> and he takes it, and then he also. He try, he sees the sign that says the world's best cup of coffee, and he gets all excited and you know congratulates the people that run the 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 place where they're serving the coffee with that in the window. He's like, congratulations, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's terrible. Like he really believes like everything that comes through, and he he doesn't have a filter. He doesn't understand why he shouldn't say the first thing that comes to his mind, just like a four year old child. So. It's it's an interesting combination because he reminds you a lot of yourself and your own mistakes when you were a kid and the things you see your kids doing and other kids doing. And it's so lighthearted. It's uh, you really can't uh, find a flaw in it. It's like you can't take it seriously, but it's so comedic. It's just so fun. That's what it is. It's like there are so many good lines in this movie, Chad. I can't get over how many <laughs> enjoyable moments there are tied to Buddy's character. And it's not very often that I think a a comedic role does great as the lead role, but he does it very well. Yeah, speaking of the lines, you and I were talking before we hit the record button, you know, what should I use as the opening stinger? And it took us a few minutes to sort of finally settle on one because this this movie is so quotable and there are so many things that I was aware of from this movie before I ever saw it. So, I mean, that, that speaks to it, especially considering it's not a Christmas classic, or at least it wasn't when I was a kid. It was only a few years old. And even now it's only it's, it's less than 15 years old. So it really says something that it was able to immediately become so quotable that it, it's considered by many to be a classic, I would think. Will Ferrell does bring a special sort of energy to the role here that he he always brings to his characters, I think, but this is just like on a, a next level because I associate Will Ferrell with more adult comedy most of the time, even though recently he has done stuff like the Lego movie and other sort of kid-centric roles. He's definitely done those, but I typically associate him with, like if you said Will Ferrell, 
I think the first thing I would go to is Anchorman, which is a wildly inappropriate movie, <laughs> yeah. but it is yeah. also wildly hysterical and one of my favorite comedies just because of how much it makes me laugh. But because this isn't an adult character and it's not an adult film per se, he's having to take his normal adult energy and take it to the next level because he can't be funny with the typical gross out gags or the typical foul language gags or anything like that. It's it's next level for those reasons. And, you know, as for the character himself, Buddy is a fish out of water, but it's not just because of his outfit and because of his cluelessness. I think what makes Buddy truly stand out from everybody else walking around New York City is that he is a happier person than anyone else we see. And in fact, later in the film, we see how his happiness and his his demeanor has changed these people's lives for the better. He's brought joy to these people. He smiles all the time because smiling's his favorite. He, he's joyful. He's full of Christmas spirit. And they're all so infectious. And it, it's amazing watching just this energy permeate out of the screen. He's innocent. He's unaware of these social norms. He's he doesn't know what a normal diet is. You know, he, he thinks of the four main food groups, candy, candy canes, candy corns, and syrup. So, I mean, it, this is a character who is completely unaware of how to function in human society. So when it comes to normal things like eating spaghetti, of course, he has to add maple syrup. When it comes to crossing streets, he doesn't know that you have to sort of wait for a light and wait for traffic to die down in order to get across safely. He just goes when he's ready. And then department store Santas are an entirely new concept to him because he only knows the one true Santa. So it's this complete fish out of water sort of character. And then we learn that he's clueless about women, too. And the first time we sort of get a glimpse of this is when he buys the the lingerie for his father because it says <laughs> for that special someone in your life. And he thinks, oh, my dad is a special someone in my life. I don't know what this garment is, but because my dad is someone special, I will get him this something special and that that will be a gift from me. And it doesn't <laughs> yeah. even occur to him that it, it might have some sort of sexual connotation or be attributed with a certain sex. It, it's just a foreign concept. And then when it comes to his infatuation with Jovi, he doesn't know what a date is. He doesn't know how to start a date, even if he did know what it was. And so he, when the time comes and Michael is standing by his side, he just says, hey, you want to go get some food? And that's his way of asking Jovi out on a date. That That sets up a great, one of the best, first date scenes I think that are out there because it's so unconventional. It's not the typical movie first date scene. So because of this character, his outlook on life, his experiences and how he's thrust into these entirely new situations, new to him at least, it just brings a whole lot of different comedy to the table than you would see in a typical comedy. Speaking of some of the other characters you mentioned there, I wanted to mention Jovi while we're at it by Zoe Deschanel. Yeah, go ahead. Rather interesting performance because I, I know her really well now from what is it called New Girl and I, I love some of her music. I actually have a few of her albums of uh, what uh, what are they called? Uh, she and him. She and him. I wanted to say his and her. Yeah, <laughs> but really good stuff. And this is a very different Zoe Deschanel, younger and playing the part. But I also think that she hadn't struck like what Zoe wanted to be in the limelight and what she wanted to do as like her favorite roles yet. So she, she's definitely playing the part of a more introverted girl who is kind of cynical and is looking for beauty and everyday things, but is just kind of maybe bored and, uh, just going through life as it is in New York where it's, it's boring. It's, um, it's just commercialized. Uh, she's not excited about Christmas. She's not doing anything special with family and friends. Um, she she doesn't even really care. Uh, but then at the same time, when she stops to really get some alone time, she's enjoying you know a shower and she's singing in the shower. She's really enjoying the the Christmas. The, well, it's not, it's not a Christmas carol, but she's enjoying the uh, baby. It's cold outside, and she uh, she's got this beautiful voice that attracts uh, Buddy's character. And again, because he's just so inexperienced and clueless, he just, you know, goes 
right into the lady's locker room and hears this pretty voice and he sits on the sink and thinks, oh, that's so pretty. I'll just sit here and listen to it and I'll start joining her and I'll sing along with her. <laughs> Jody, or Jovi freaks out. But um, like you said, that like there's that awkwardness where Jovi is just the right kind of person to be curious about what makes Buddy tick when he is really talented because He's not, he's not a crazy person. She can tell that like he's not dangerous because he ends up working in the mall and he does a number on the toy department where everything is gorgeous. Everything he does is amazing. Like he can sketch the Mona Lisa on an, on a, uh, what's an Etch-a-Sketch and he does a wonderful job. So some things about Buddy don't really add up. Like he's incredibly talented, but he's also very happy and he also has no idea just how unusual he is and doesn't think about how other people see him. So she's playing along with it at first, you know, just to, you know, see, see what makes Buddy tick, I think, but also finds him to be charming. So it's one of those weird things where come the, um, the moment uh, where singing is super important uh, near the climax, at the climax, where uh, she is just humoring him at first, but then realizes buddy is right and that's really interesting because all this time like i said there's this interesting twist where buddy is like practicing evangelism on everybody in, in new york city like hey why don't you just do you know, believe in santa claus like it don't if if you acknowledge that santa claus is real then everything is wonderful about christmas and this time of year and we have so much to celebrate but nobody really believes in santa claus so uh, it's it's a huge dampener on Santa's business and trying to get his sleigh to run. And Jovi's one of those people who's like, you know, she wants to believe in it, even if it's just as a fairy tale, like in a in a second life. Like, I'll humor you, buddy. I I really want to believe in your in your mission to just make people happy, and I want to be happy. So I, I'm I'm ready to be spirited about Christmas. And so, yeah, it's interesting how um, they're very, they're very interesting opposites, and they turn out to work well together. The first thing we noticed about Jovi is how bewildered she is at Buddy. It, it's such a foreign character to her, as as out of place as Buddy feels. Everybody else looks at him uh, just the same. How do you respond to someone like him? And the first few times they come across each other, and the first few times he interacts with her. She just sort of stares at him wide-eyed because she doesn't know how to respond. But next to his self-confidence, we notice her self-doubt, really. Uh, we, we know that she doesn't like singing in front of people. We know that she probably isn't paid very much and isn't enjoying her job very much because she talks about how her water was shut off and here she is taking a uh, shower at the mall. And so think her life isn't great at the moment, to say the least of it. She's not having a great life. But through Buddy's example and her affection for him, you know, he's somebody so different from everybody else she's ever come across in her life. He encourages her and he makes her feel good about herself. He's completely honest with her because Buddy is honest with everybody, including himself at all times. And through him and his example, she stands up and she sings in front of people to help everybody join in on the Christmas spirit there at the end. Uh, she doesn't know the the details she doesn't know anything except that buddy is involved and that bringing these people together is the right thing to do in that moment because as he taught her the best way to spread christmas cheer is singing loud for all to hear so what's she going to do she's finally going to stand up and and prove that she can sing in front of all these people for the first time in probably her life because she wasn't comfortable doing that before buddy so i i, I love their interaction you're right they are very opposite characters from each other and that's how they sort of grow now, the other big character is Walter. So what do you have to say about Walter, played by James Caan? I'm not as interested in the uh, Buddy's family because they, they don't have the most interesting scenes or the most interesting lines, but they are essential to Buddy's story. And I, I, <laughs> here's the thing. like the, the point is made that this family is struggling that they they're not really connecting, you know, Mr. and Mrs. are not talking very well, they're not communicating well, and Walter is consumed by his job. He doesn't make time for his son and he's not really interested in his you know, newly discovered son. 
And he's just, he's kind of like cruising into retirement, I guess, one day. But he doesn't really want to put forth the effort into his job. And, you know, he's not setting an example for either son. They're not talking very well at home. And Buddy shakes all that up. And it's just kind of clever how if you ignore the problem because you don't even give it attention, but you, you act happy and you, you bring life into the family, a lot of things can improve really fast. You know, um, not everything has to be based on the past. You know, you get the idea that Walter and his, um, what he does in his life is a representation of, well, this is just where life has brought me. And, you know, now I don't really know how to get out of this one for my job, but I'll try this, you know, and the buddy has better and more interesting ideas and it also messes up ideas. So uh, I, I don't find his dad the most interesting part of this compelling part of this. Like I like his elf dad a lot more than his human dad. <laughs> so I, but it is, it is a part of the, character arc for everybody of New York. Like I think that Walter is just a representation of this is your average man in New York City with a little bit of success who has lost any appreciation for Christmas. So Buddy brings that back. You know, and a lot of Christmas values are centered around family values. Yeah, I mean Walter Walter's lost his way. He doesn't know what really matters in life anymore. He he's made his life all about work and deadlines and money and it's all more important than his family at this point. And even then in his job, you were right. He he doesn't really care as much anymore. He's in a field of creativity. He's at a children's book publisher, but he's more concerned about saving money than he is about making quality children's stories that make sense to the kids right at the beginning of the movie he's talking about how it, it just it's better to just ship the book as is missing two pages than it is to spend the thirty thousand dollars it would take to replace and to uh fix the problem so it's all <laughs> about terrible it is terrible Can you imagine but, but i mean that's what matters to him is the money and buddy comes in shakes up his life he manipulates buddy which is sad <laughs> he, he says you know when when buddy is at the house and He's going off to work. Buddy calls him five minutes later and says, oh, it works. And I'll call you again in five minutes. He says, no, no, no. I'll, and he makes it sound like he's going to call Buddy back. And we all know that he's not going to call Buddy. And then when uh, the next day, when Buddy goes with him into work, he tricks him into working in the mailroom. And there, there's some funny things that happen from that situation as well. But he's he's a manipulator. He takes advantage of Buddy and his innocence, ultimately. Um you know, Buddy's entry into his life is a shock. And even when he gets over that initial shock, Buddy doesn't become anything more in his life than an inconvenience. But over the course of the film, Buddy helps him to see how he's even pushed aside his other son, uh, Michael. So by the end, they all come together as one big family. Um, and that's that's the big thing about Walter, you know. But I, I wanted to just mention Emily, played by Mary Steenburgen. Because mm -hmm. she's the only human character in the film who puts any faith in or encourages Buddy at all, unconditionally. She's not even his mother. Like, she has no relation to this kid, or to this adult, I suppose. Um, right. Aside from the fact that she is married to his birth father. But she is the one to encourage him and to tolerate him and to house him and feed him. And when, at the end of the film... Jovi is standing there singing to help Buddy out and to bring everybody together. Despite her obvious lack of ability, they try and point that out pretty painfully. Um, she stands up and she starts singing along with Jovi to to help Buddy out. So I, I like Emily as a character. I like Mary Steenburgen. And it's funny, both this week and last week, we talked about a film involving Mary Steenburgen. And last week and the week before, we talked about films that involved Elizabeth Shue. So it's like we're going from one film to the next, connecting them. And it's just strange how everything's working out. But uh, I like Mary Steenburgen, and this movie is no different. Um, and just real quick, I wanted to mention one more character, and that's just Michael. Because Michael is sort of like, uh, I wouldn't call him a normalized version of Buddy. But he is definitely Buddy's main confidant once he warms up to him. You know, he he thinks Buddy is weird at first, but it doesn't take long for him to warm up to Buddy because 
he's been neglected by his father and now he has this older brother adult friend who is fun and is different and can stand up for him and because of all those things he latches on to him and they be they become good pals over the course of the film but that relationship also causes michael to expect more from his father you know buddy is in a way another neglected son even though um walter didn't know that buddy even existed when he's thrust into his life he doesn't really make any effort to mend that relationship so he's a neglected son so when Buddy is spurned by Walter after he interrupts a meeting with Peter Dinklage's character and he runs away, Michael goes to his dad and reminds him of his responsibility as a father. And that that results in one of my favorite very small moments in the film that I think a lot of people would look over. But it's after Walter has said, up yours, and he, he's quit his job and is is ready to go help find Buddy. He and Michael do this little sort of fist bump thing where you can see it's something that they've obviously done before. And to me, that hinted at a previous relationship that had maybe been pushed aside in favor of his work instead. And this is them returning to the the proper father-son balance. And I, I really like that really small moment where it's just like things are the way they were supposed to be now. Another character I wanted to mention as well is Edward Asner, just because I, he's uh, one of the characters on Mary Tyler Moore. And I watched that show several years ago. Really enjoyed it. And I did not realize that was Edward Asner. And I, I, I always liked his performance. So, uh, yeah, he makes a good Santa Claus. He, he doesn't have the most interesting character to play, but he is a good Santa Claus. And, and taking a step back from all the character analysis, I want to say that even for those characters that are less interesting to me and have storylines that are less interesting to me, I can see where a lesser movie would have really done those poorly that, that these, all these side characters are done very well. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing Walter or anything like that. They just, um, they're not as charming and interesting as the things that elf is doing with the people back in the North pole and the rest of New York city. Cause those are so funny. The scene in the mail room and it, winding up drinking with all the men and, then, you know, just the comedy where he's going shopping and he ends up sleeping in the window. But anything Buddy says is just, you know, really funny. Th- those things that are going around Elf's family are more entertaining to me. But I can see where, like other movies, other Christmas movies, would have done a poorer execution on the less entertaining parts, like the books at the publishing company and anything to do with Dad. It would have been more... It would have felt like a lesser draft of the script if it was in uh, other people's hands. Right. They're definitely not as colorful characters as Buddy himself and Jovi and the other North Pole characters are. But uh, I, I do think their stories and their, their character growth and development is handled pretty well for this fair of film. Now, to wrap up characters, there are just a couple of pretty cool cameos that I wanted to point out. Uh, the first one is actually Peter Billingsley as Ming Ming, the supervisor elf at the beginning. Peter Billingsley is not known for acting as much anymore, but when he was, he was known as Ralphie in A Christmas Story. Yeah. So he he makes an appearance at the beginning, um, back in the North Pole, and then a voice that appears in this movie is Ray Harryhausen, who is a visual effects animator and producer, most known for his work on the 1949 adaptation, or it might not have been, I guess this was the original at that point, Mighty Joe Young. Wow. Uh, that he did the stop motion on the gorilla. Also, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in 1958. And I think the one he's most known for is for the, the skeleton fight sequence in Jason and the Argonauts in oh, 1963. Yeah. And he ended up voicing the polar bear cub in this movie. So it's a, a fun little nose tweak in the direction of somebody so established in the industry of animation that he would be playing an animated animal character in this movie. Um, and of course, he's also referenced in Monsters Incorporated by Pixar with the sushi restaurant called Harryhausen's. So a couple <laughs> small little appearances that I don't think a lot of people would catch on to if, unless you looked at the cast list and were familiar with the names. That's very, that's interesting. I had no idea. Nice connections. And it does feel like a movie that realized in production what they were basically aware that they were creating a Christmas classic. And wouldn't you say like they had a good feeling, like they knew they were using Christmas secret sauce 
to make this film. Yeah, well, I think it's like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg with Indiana Jones, where the tagline of that one was the return of the great adventure, where they were really hearkening back to those classic 1940s serials of the these great big adventure stories. And I think that John Favreau and team here with Elf were trying to do the same thing with the classic 1960s, I believe, Christmas specials, Rudolph, Santa Claus has come to town, those other Rankin Bass productions, yeah. and really diving into the, what made those films so special, which was catchy music, fun characters, pretty visuals. It's just the whole package. So yeah, I, I think that they were really just trying to bring back a little bit of what made older movies so special by bringing a little bit of that innocence into modern day cinema. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, and they definitely they definitely did a lot to hearken and play homage as well as to parody the older Christmas classics. But it was all in good fun, and you can tell they did it with a lot of love. So, yeah, because I grew up on those, I really appreciate that. Me too. And speaking of parody, uh, let's talk about the music just a little bit because the 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 word that comes to mind when I hear a lot of John Debney's score for this film is the word pastiche. It's imitating the traditional kind of Christmas music in every <laughs> obvious way. Uh, you've got yeah. sleigh bells and you've got these flashy bubblegum corals and there's whistling parts and it, it's just as hokey as you can expect it to be in some instances of the film, especially like during the storybook sequence at the beginning during the opening credits. But at other times... It is so sweet and beautiful. The main theme for this film is it's it's wonderful. It's gorgeous. It and it actually reminds me a lot of Alan Silvestri's theme for the Polar Express. Oh yeah. The first four notes of the main theme are actually identical as far as intervallic uh, relationships mm. go, and then it changes from that point on. And it is worth noting that this movie came a year before the Polar Express. So oh. uh, I don't think either one of them was copying the other, but it, but, it is interesting yeah. that that That's they have such similar main themes, uh, at least as far as the beginning of them goes. You're right. And it also feels like a faster pace, like in general, um, it, 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 it's a very um, sort of shallow, very upbeat, very good, uh, just like wholesome treat. Like I think <laughs> it's amazing how when I try to describe this music, I even think about the things that are going on in the music unintentionally. Like I started to say, like if there was ever music that belonged to the kids board game called Candyland, it would be this music. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, buddy yeah. loves candy and he's always thinking about candy. So yeah, that's really suitable. Yeah. I mean, and then John Debney's score throughout the whole thing is just like that. It, it's sweet. It fits the mood. It It is colorful. It is happy and fun and beautiful at times when it needs to be. And I can't say I've listened through the whole score separate of the film, but within the film itself, it brings a whole lot to the table and just makes for a pleasant Christmas listening experience in addition to the the watching of the film itself. Yeah, I've been on a kick to create tons of different playlists and music playlists, and I'm going through all the Marvel films and putting together my favorite tracks in order of the events of the MCU and then I started realizing like I could do this with a lot of other movies and like genres and stuff. So this Christmas, I'm going to have to do this with Christmas movies and elf will be a very important one. Be easy to overlook. But now that we're really thinking about the music, I, there's not a, a bad note in it that I can recall. Not at all. And I, I also really like the, the soundtrack of the film. There's plenty of Christmas classics. Uh, the one that was stuck in my head all day when I was finishing up my notes after watching was Stevie Wonder's That's What Christmas Means to Me, I think. I'm not entirely sure what of the exact title, uh, but that one is pretty prominent in the film during a particular scene. And that one, like I said, has been stuck in my head all day. Uh, but then you also get a couple of treats from Zoe Deschanel, as we were talking about. We get the pseudo duet between her and Will Ferrell in the shower. Um, and then you get the Santa Claus is coming to town at the end of the film. Uh, as as they're trying to bring people together to help Santa out, so both the score and the the soundtracks and the the standalone songs by Zoe Deschanel and little guest appearance by Will Ferrell are very pleasant. And I, I, I the music from this movie is just top notch all the way around. I think mm, couldn't agree more. 
Now, as far as bringing it home and relevance goes, what is something that you take away from this movie? I've got three main points, but I want to hear what you got first. Mm. The the number one is is just I could always come away from this film feeling really happy. Uh, it's really uplifting. It's it's a reminder that a lot of life hinges on your point of view, your perspective, and you can bother to you can bother yourself to just be a difficult. person person to be egotistical like maybe some of those co-workers of Walters at the publishing company you can lose sight of a lot of the the heartwarming sort of magical things that happen throughout life and family and at the holidays you can lose your sense of generosity and uh, a giving spirit and then uh, life is just really uh, kind of the way that a lot of people live their everyday lives in this day and age a lot of people just live their lives complaining on Facebook and acting very cynical. And this movie really flies in the face of cynicism and says, no, don't be a cynic. And here's why. Like, look at Buddy. He's so happy. Be like Buddy. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I like that message. I do too. And if I can just butt in real quick, because that was actually my first point too. Good moods are contagious. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. Buddy br- literally brightens the life of everyone he meets, even if they don't know it at first. When we get to the ending and Jovi is singing, we get little uh, flash, not flashbacks, but we get uh, jumps to other characters that we've met throughout the course of the film. And we see these characters who are singing and dancing along to this event that is happening on the TV screens. They don't have to, but they are caught up in the Christmas spirit because Buddy has introduced them to Christmas spirit and into being joyful and even Walter comes around eventually, um, singing along, and he, he's sort of the final push that they need to get Santa's sleigh airborne. And having a good mood and making that contagious doesn't mean being happy all the time or faking it when you're not. No, You know, no. Buddy isn't happy 100% of the time in this movie. He is always authentic to himself, and he's always honest with himself. There are a couple times when he is upset and when he is angry, but when he is happy, he does what he can to spread it. And I think there there's value to be taken from that. If you're in a good mood, let people know, share that with people. And maybe the world can be a little bit of a brighter place as a result. Now, what else do you got? Another thing that has stood out to me was the theme of just, you know, what are you willing to believe in? And again, I've made some allusions to this, but Buddy, Buddy didn't have to walk the walk and talk the talk based on blind faith because he grew up around Santa Claus and the workshop and you know he knew that these elves and what Santa Claus could do were real and a lot of times people seem to be just dropped into a life where everything is convenient and happy and he you you seem to have a lot of reasons to be happy um while all the people in New York City their life is less in interesting or bad things are happening to them and they don't feel like anything is going for them. So they lose sight of the fact that they have a lot of blessings too to count, that a lot of things are going for them. They're just not believing in the fact that good things happen all around them. So when Buddy comes to town and he's saying, you know, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, guys. Let's get excited. <laughs> let's let's make this place look great. And everybody is just not into it. It's not just that they're cynical. It's that they also just don't believe that the good things even matter or that those are good things. So this is one of the problems for Walter and his wife. And I think why they've kind of lost their way as a a family trying to figure out like, you know, they're not exactly they're on the same page because they don't value the everyday uh, the, the everyday good things that come their way and they haven't con- that connection together with their son. They don't, you know, like Walter doesn't value that time he needs to make with his son. And buddy comes along and says, no, like this is right in front of your face. This is good. Like, why aren't you excited about this? And so that's the culminated with the song. Santa Claus is coming to town. The idea that, you know, you really do need to believe that, these everyday things around you that are great are great and uh, don't lose sight of that. That touches on my second point as well. Very good, Joe. Good. Two for two. My thing is the, the, the idea of seeing versus believing, right? That is my big takeaway from the Polar Express as well. That is what I love so much about that film is because there's so much you can take away from this concept of 
what you see doesn't necessarily have to be what you believe and vice versa. The climax of the film, Santa's sleigh won't fly unless people believe in him without seeing him. And that's important because it's a sign of faith. Even Walter, who sees Santa, you know, he he's there, he's helping Buddy in the in Central Park. Uh, you've got the the four patrol officers who this viewing reminded me of the four horsemen of the apocalypse for some reason because there were four <laughs> of them. Um, but you know, he's his character. He sees Santa in front of his face. Yet later, when he's standing in the the street with the the rest of the crowd and everybody's singing, Santa Claus is coming to town. He's not singing. He's lip syncing along because he doesn't think it makes a difference because I think part of him still doesn't believe everything that Buddy has told him and the fact that he saw actual reindeer and Santa's actual sleigh and Santa himself and he's wearing Santa's jacket at that moment. But in that moment when Michael stands in and he says, hey, you're not singing. And he says, what's the point? Well, he finally joins in and he sees the point is that believing makes a difference in your life and other people's lives it it's just he's he was the last voice they needed and so i think it's it's seeing versus believing it's also a little bit about efficacy of our own influence on the world i think but him singing there at the end it was him showing that he believed buddy's whole story and that his singing would make a difference so i i really liked that theme as well any other takeaways those are the two that I really enjoy. Um, third takeaway, if this was a theme, I think it's just humor. Like, you know, when I was uh, recently reading some things for a business and they were doing some, um, they were hiring some new video producers. And one of the things that they said in the position when looking for a new video producer, uh, they said that uh, a, a, they, a good sense of humor is a plus. <laughs> And it's interesting because it is something that is sorely lacking among a lot of people. Like they don't feel the need to, to, you know, in, enjoy each other's company and entertain entertain each other. But when you come away from this movie, don't you just feel a little eager to like make somebody laugh, you know, do something quirky and silly, and have a good time with your family? Like it's infectious. Just the not just the, the being happy is infectious, but also the idea of entertain each other, like have a good Christmas. You know, you don't have to be the couch potato and just consume things. Being happy doesn't mean just kicking back and allowing for other people around you to show you a good time, you know, uh, liven it up. And I feel like the movie captures that where it's like, we've entertained you. Now you go and do likewise, you know, show other people a good time. I don't know how it accomplishes that and not all comedies do, but this one kind of does for me. When I see it, I am compelled to be humorous. (laughs) (laughs) My my day was definitely brighter having watched this movie. Um, I I was laughing along the whole time. I had happy tears by the end of it. It, It's just a fun, lighthearted movie. It's perfect fair for Christmas time, especially, but heck in the middle of the year too, Christmas is still six months away. I enjoy yeah. it a heck of a lot now. <laughs> there aren't any great summer holiday classics, y'all. <laughs> That's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one more takeaway and it was sort of my top takeaway from the film really was the whole father son aspect of things and also just the concept of family. The obvious one is Walter learning that others, especially family, are more important than work and money, right? I mean, that's that's yeah. the obvious one. Uh, he's placed everything but his family at the forefront of his life, yet you still see his guilt following pushing Buddy away, that, that one scene where he yells at him. And that, that is the, the saddest moment of the film, rightfully so. But you see his guilt afterwards. And so when Michael arrives during that pitch towards uh, his executive or his boss or whoever that individual is when michael arrives he knows what he has to do and so it's no longer a question of do i choose my work or do i choose my family he's chosen his family he just needed the sort of catalyst to send him off searching for his son he's finally accepted that buddy is his son in that moment so that's the the obvious arc of this film walter is the character who goes through the most growth but then you have papa elf who i i don't want to forget because he's an adoptive family. He's the adoptive father of buddy and they're real families too. Those relationships matter. 
Papa Elf takes Buddy in as his own, and he shows remorse when Buddy leaves to go find his birth father. He's sad. They they share a hug. You can see him sort of staring up wistfully. He's going to miss him. That is somebody that he cares about he, because he is his father for all intents and purposes, right? Right, yeah. But at the end of it all, Buddy, Jovi, and their new daughter, Susie, who's named after his birth mother, by the way, still visit the North Pole because Buddy's relationship with Papa Elf is still important to him. He's got his birth father now. That's great. That relationship is thriving. He's rekindled that. They've met each other and they're happy as a family. But Papa Elf is the one who raised Buddy and he doesn't forget that because that that relationship is still important. So I wanted to highlight both of those father-son relationships in this film. The, the one between Walter and Buddy and as well as Michael um, because that's an important part of the equation too. But then Papa Elf and Buddy, uh, because adoption is a cool thing when that's the option you have to go with or the option you want to go with. That is a, a really cool thing, and that's a family too. So those are my big takeaways. Any other sort of final thoughts about the movie? No, I just uh, think that everybody needs to rush out and see it this this uh, this weekend, this July. You know, I agree. That's what you got to do. <laughs> Yeah, it, definitely pull out the Blu-rays, pull out the digital copy. It might be on Netflix. I'm not sure. Pull it up where you can find it because it it fits so perfectly in the middle of July. I had so much fun watching it today and then talking about it tonight with you. So thank you. Yeah, it was a good idea. I, I know people do, you know, mention Christmas in July. I'd never done a Christmas review in July before. So this is this was good. Well, thank you, Joe. That was the end of the official 51st episode of Cinescope. One away from a year. How crazy is that? You were there a year ago, Joe. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Thank you uh, for having me again. Yeah, it's been uh, interesting to watch the progression of Cinescope. I mean, listen to the progression. And uh, you're doing a good job. So I tune in. Thank you, Joe. And we'll we'll be sure to maybe not go so long before having you back again. Oh, thank you. I like to be heard. That's That's really what matters. That's the true spirit of Christmas in July. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Remember the giveaway. You've got just a few more days if you want to be entered by the time we record next week's episode. So rate, review, subscribe if you're feeling generous on iTunes to enter, or you can share the show on Facebook or Twitter uh, for an additional entry, up to two entries to win one or two movies. There are three winners, so you've got good chances right now. If you want to email feedback and ideas, you can do that at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, I've got a few people I haven't responded to yet, but trust me, I will reach out to you in the coming weeks to get you onto the show as we approach Cinescope year two. So if you have a movie that you love, feel like you could talk about it for a little bit, let me know and I'd love to have you on the show. Now, I teased earlier that a new podcast is coming. And that podcast is called An American Workplace, a retrospective The Office podcast. So this show is essentially going to be a rewatch of the classic NBC TV series um, starring Steve Carell. It's going to be hosted, a permanent co-host with my friend Katie White. And it's got the same sort of focus as Cinescope, positivity, We'll be going through two episodes of The Office each week, talking about character growth and interaction, the funny moments, and generally just what we love about the show. You can go and you can listen to a preview episode that is available now. The website link is in the show notes, and that website is workplacepodcast.com. And you can also subscribe and follow now on Twitter, on Facebook. You can find those links on the website. Maybe even give a preemptive rating or review on iTunes so that we can reach a wider audience before we officially launch in these next couple of weeks. Because we want the show to be interactive. We want people to participate in this rewatch with us, reach out, tell us your thoughts on the show, and we'll have guests on occasionally, and it'll be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to it. We're actually recording our first episode later tonight, and it's it's going to be a good time. So I hope you tune in to An American Workplace. Now... Joe, where can people find you online? I am still on Twitter. After all these years, you'll find me at JCS Darnell. And uh, more than happy to talk about movies with you there. Yes, and then hopefully you will also be able to find Joe on Retake again very soon and possibly other podcasting ventures. We shall see. Yes, stay tuned. 
<laughs> the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is, as always, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information, details on an American workplace can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And by the way, thecinescopepodcast.com is looking brand new these past couple weeks. So if you haven't seen the new website, there's a cool guest page where you can see every guest's uh, thumbnail and the biography and see links to every single episode they've been on right within their guest page. If you haven't checked it out, it's pretty cool. So go do that. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Joe. It's always a pleasure talking movies with you. I missed it. Yes. Thanks, Chad. Glad we could do it again. Yes. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 51. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope. And we'll be back next week with episode 52. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.